Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 154 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Ashley Vance, author of the new book Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future. It's a biography of South African-born entrepreneur Elon Musk, who made over $100 million as one of the founders of PayPal, then used that money to help launch leading companies in the fields of solar energy, electric cars, and private spaceflight. Musk is also a big fan of science fiction and comic books, and credits them with inspiring his mission to help save the world through new technology. And now, here's our interview with Ashley Vance. All right, so we're here with Ashley Vance. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so you say in your book that you were initially a bit skeptical about Elon Musk. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I guess I've covered Silicon Valley for about 15 years for a few different places. Um, I worked at the New York Times and, and at Business Week. And I don't know, Elon always struck me as kind of the guy who talked the biggest but didn't always deliver on what he was talking about. I felt like I'd heard about the Tesla Roadster for so many years before it appeared, and then there was kind of a big gap between that and the next car. And then I think I probably just hadn't paid as much attention to SpaceX as I should have and sort of chalked it up to being a space tourism company and, I guess, ignored it a little bit because of that. And then in 2012, you know, I realized that SpaceX had got to the International Space Station, and then the Model S came out from Tesla in pretty quick succession. And then I was like, wow, I mean, this guy who's been out there harping on these things for a long time. It took him a little bit longer, but he seems to be delivering on what he was talking about. Well, right. And I'm curious about this whole thing, because you, you, you say that you thought of him as a card-carrying member of Silicon Valley's techno-utopian club. Could you say a bit more about that whole group? That's the other thing, I guess. Yeah. You know, I it gets a little much sometimes in Silicon Valley with people it's like I appreciate, I cover technology, so I like it. <laughs> I'm interested <laughs> in it, but just, you know, there's so much about it's just sort of perfect and the answer for everything and, and technology is never wrong. And um, a lot of it, I guess, comes from more the kind of consumer web services and apps and things like that. And then some of the people who are chasing life extension and, and, some of these topics that you know I'm interested in as well, but are a little more out there. And I guess I just sort of put Elon in that category more. I mean, probably a fair bit from my ignorance. And then also, I mean, some of the things he says certainly fit into that. But when I, so basically in 2012, when SpaceX and Tesla kind of hit their milestones, I pitched a cover story on him for Business Week and got to go report on them. And when I saw the factories, that blew me away. But then when I interviewed Elon, he was so much more interesting than I think I'd given him credit for. He answered questions really authentically, I thought, and actually thought about them and was way more layered <laughs> as a person than I'd been expecting. Right. I mean, from the way that you talk about him, about him in the book, he kind of seems like a, a real geek. You say he's a little bit socially awkward, um, in kind of a, a charming way. Yeah, I mean, I think you can see some of that in his presentations. I think he's gotten a lot better at giving these product launches and announcing products, but certainly he doesn't come off to me, at least, as kind of Steve Jobs polished or anything like that. He can be um, a little jittery and, and, and stop and start when he's talking and, you know, just sort of more of like an engineer that you might think of in your head. And there's definitely some of that when you first start talking to him. He's not really kind of the guy that you, the chummy guy that you would have a beer with and, and sit down with at a baseball game and just kind of have small talk or anything like that. It's it's um, a little more intense. But I think for his friends and his family, they probably, well, I know they see a different side of Elon that's a little more relaxed and, and funny. And I got to see some of that too. It just takes a while. Right. I, I assume you saw the recent Simpsons episode, The Musk Who Fell to Earth. Is that basically what he's like in real life? Right. I thought he was a pretty good sport in that one. <laughs> I mean, I think they took it probably, it being The Simpsons, I thought they took it, you know, to its logical end and that he's not quite like that with the, um, you know, I'm looking for something to represent my emotions and everything. But obviously, 
they had sort of tuned in to at least what I saw and I, what I think other people see. But just Elon read the script for that, right? So it points that he's not completely like that, that he would he'd be willing to poke fun at himself like that, I think. Right. And, and so you met him and you wrote this article. And then at what point did you decide that you wanted to write a whole book about him? Pretty quickly after I had I'd seen this, the Tesla factory and I thought this is cool. And then when I went to visit the SpaceX factory, um, I was just blown away. I mean, it's literally kind of in the middle of Los Angeles. And I think I had expected to see one rocket being worked on by a few dozen people, but it, it's it's not quite you know, mass assembly because there's not that many rockets that go off, but I mean, they're producing um, a dozen, if not dozens at a time. And it was thousands of people in this constant hive of activity. And I just had no idea something quite like that existed right in the middle of Los Angeles in California in the United States and was blown away. And then when Elon was that such a good interview, I saw it pretty quickly. I'd been looking for a book to do. I've always gravitated towards companies that manufacture stuff as opposed to kind of web things. And um, so I just thought, yeah, this is the book for me. And I went and told Elon that. And he told me that he didn't care. And <laughs> he didn't. He wasn't going to help me. And that's that's sort of how it started. Well, and then what was the whole problem? I mean, how, like, how many people did you interview and how long did it take? That sort of thing? It took a while. I... I told him I wanted to do the book and he said, no, other people have asked me before. And, um, he said he wanted to write his own book. I told him he probably didn't have time to do that, <laughs> but he said he did. And, um, then you sort of do this process where you, you know, you write a book proposal and I actually kind of like sold that <laughs> in New York to the publishing companies. And then I went back to Elon on a Saturday. I'll never forget it. I went to Tesla and told him, look, I've sold the book here's all the reasons you should participate now. And he still said, no, he was very nice about it. And and then he wasn't a jerk or anything like that at all. Um, if people would call him and ask if they should talk to me and he would almost always tell them yes. And um, that included some of his really good friends and some of his family. And so I went through about 200 people and it took about 18 months of that. And then I got this call at my house one evening, I'll never forget that either. It was like Elon Musk pops up on the caller ID. <laughs> and uh, he was kind of like my white whale at that point. It was weird because we'd email, but he would never budge at all. So then when I saw this phone call, I knew kind of something must be coming. And then he popped on the line. He said, look, I can, he, he seemed to always think he could like still shut the book down. And, and so he said, you know, I can make life really difficult on you or I can cooperate. And I sort of just ignored the first part and tried to convince him on the second part. <laughs> well, and he did end up cooperating, right? I mean, didn't you do something like 30 hours of interviews with him or something in the end? He did. He did. So we had that conversation on the phone and then we, we set up a dinner and he, um, he said, look, if I'm going to do this, I want to be able to read the book first and I want to put in footnotes and I had this big kind of speech about why I thought that was a bad idea <laughs> and how I couldn't let him do that as a journalist and um, to his credit I only got about five minutes into my 45 minute speech and he said okay fine <laughs> just do it and so I think he was a good sport about that I mean it's um, you know it's got to be sort of a horrible process to have somebody dig into your life for that long and talk to all these people and, and for you to have no idea what's coming. And, um, so then he, we had, we agreed to have sort of like dinner once a month and, and we'd have these pretty long dinners. Um, he tends to eat pretty late, like around eight or eight thirty, and we'd meet at the restaurant. And then a lot of times we shut it down. And then the other huge difference was that I got access to the executives at the companies because at both SpaceX and Tesla, there's four or five people at the top level who've been there basically for the entire history of the companies and a lot of them built sort of the key technologies and knew all the good stories and and since elon does almost all the press they don't get any ink and and nobody really knows who they are and um i wanted to be sure to get them in the book hmm. yeah and so and, and you talked to elon a lot about his childhood and teenage years and stuff which was really interesting and He's so compelling to me because he seems just like my friends and I, that he's into science fiction and comic books and video games and Dungeons and Dragons and all these things. 
But Schroeder, crucially, unlike my friends and I, he like made hundreds of millions of dollars and <laughs> can actually try to do all this stuff in real life. But could you just tra- talk about that aspect of like how science fiction and comic books influenced him? Yeah, I mean, and you're right, but there is this definite down-to-earth quality about him, even today. I mean, I think he'll he'll go work 20 hours and blast off a rocket, and then, I know this for a fact, he'll come back and crash on somebody, a friend of his couch, and fall asleep playing Bioshock, <laughs> hmm. uh, which is kind of like a funny thing to picture. But when he was a kid, I think um, he seemed to consume science fiction at this like amazing rate. I mean, he read through just about like every library and bookstore that, that was in his neighborhood. And, um, and the science fiction stuff was what really grabbed him. And he was really, he, he won dungeons and dragons tournaments and, and all this stuff seems to have been, um, it was definitely fun for him and entertaining, but it seems to have been a calling as well. I think from a really early age, he was, um, locked into space as kind of, as the thing he had to do. Right. Yeah, so in the book, you mentioned uh, some of his favorite fantasy and science fiction books were Lord of the Rings, Asimov's Foundation, Heinlein's Moon is a Harsh Mistress, and Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Since this is Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, obviously, that's a favorite of ours. And he talks about those all the time, right? I mean, he'll rattle that off, yeah, with ease. I mean, so, I mean, is there anything that he said about those books that didn't make it into the book? Into your book? Not really. I mean, he he always points to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy as just kind of his guiding principle for knowing, for sort of deciding that you should find out what the big questions are. And then once you do, that's what you go tackle. And I I mean, he, he talks in the book about, I think he was like 14 or 15, and he has... I think like maybe a lot of teenagers do. He's, he's like questioning God and he's like reading all these religious texts and philosophical texts. And that's kind of what really grabbed him at that moment in time was that you should settle on kind of a handful of big questions and the stuff that you think is important and go after it full bore. And so that's what he, every time I sort of started fishing around in that area, that's what he would point back to. Yeah, I can totally see. I mean, Hitchhiker's Guide is one of my favorite books, obviously, and it does. It's a funny science fiction novel, but it, it really grapples with profound questions. And uh, I think that's, yeah, I, I could totally see that, you know, well, becoming that's, that's, a... That's how he operates, right? Everyone, when I <laughs> I talk to people, and they say, you know, why does he want to go to Mars? I mean, it just seems so silly to some people, but I think to him, that is the important... It's like making man a multiplanetary species is fundamentally huge important thing and and he's identified it and nobody else was doing anything about it so he he decided to right it, it's funny because you talk in the book a lot about how th- people think he's crazy but from my point of view i mean everything about him makes total sense because i'm so similar um but to me everyone else seems crazy that people <laughs> people act as if 100 years from now is like narnia it's like some crazy thing that could never possibly happen when in fact 100 years from now is an inevitability and Everyone should be thinking about it because it's really important. Yeah, he seems a hard figure for other people to wrap their head around. <laughs> when I would, when I was first pitching the book in New York, he definitely did not have the same cachet as he had in Silicon Valley, and this whole Mars thing totally baffled people. And then they would say, "This was even in 2012 when SpaceX had already docked at the space station." And then they would all say, "You know, but what is he? What is like? What's he done? When's he gonna like?" come through and like, what have you done you know, <laughs> something to the space station that's like this is a huge accomplishment i mean this is something only kind of nations do and uh and so i think when a lot of other people hear i think it just depends who you are when some people hear the mars thing it just doesn't um doesn't resonate with them i was i am not like you know i was like neither a car person nor an aerospace sort of space person coming into this, but I mean, I try to look through everything of sort of the lens of his brain and it makes total sense to me from that perspective. Right. Well, you know, on the subject of, of Mars, I mean, maybe for listeners who don't know, uh, talk a little bit about his aspirations for Mars and talk about the, the posters that they have in the, like the lobby of SpaceX. Yeah. It's one of my favorite things. I mean, you first walk up 
So you walk into SpaceX doors and you kind of turn right and Elon's cubicle is pretty close to where the, the front door is. And, and right before you get to it, there's these two posters of Mars and, and one is kind of Mars as it is today. And then one is where it's been totally transformed into a habitable planet. And it's all, it's, it's green and blue and, <laughs> and looks wonderful. And so that's right by Elon's office. Um, it's pretty funny. It took him a while to, I mean, he talks about this stuff readily that he wants to set up a colony on Mars and that he thinks we might be able to start doing launches by 2026. And um, then kind of funny because you push a little deeper on the plans and I could never tell how concrete they were. I know for a fact now um, SpaceX has the Falcon Heavy, which is kind of their next giant rocket. And then there's one after that that's even bigger. And, you know, they've already got the engines for that design. They haven't, like, built them, but they have them in CAD. And um, and they have the structure for the craft. And, and knowing sort of the quality of the engineers there, I mean, I think, you know, it would work. And then Elon, in the book, he talks a lot about he knows, like, what fuel he would want to use for it. And he's got it down to that level. And then one of my favorite parts is he starts talking about um, when the Earth and Mars are close, I think it's sort of like a kind of like a one month window where you'd want to do as many launches as possible. And he starts talking about, you know, he wants to have these automated launches and set up like hundreds, if not thousands of rockets per day and just this huge tonnage of cargo. And he thinks that, um, you have to get sort of each flight down to about, I think two hundred thousand to five hundred thousand um, dollars per flight to make it kind of a, a thing where uh, entrepreneurs and and sort of like early colonists would give up their life on Earth to go chase after that. Right, and in the book you quote him as talking about having millions of people from Earth going to Mars. I mean, that's pretty that's pretty ambitious. Right, right. I I, I apologize. I don't have my book right in front of me. I should, but he he he. I mean, he goes into pretty. He's totally run the math on all this stuff, right? Sort of how many people he needs, how much tonnage of cargo, how many flights it would take. Um, he's dead serious about it all. It's kind of funny because then sometimes if I'd push on the terraforming kind of stuff, or what would the habitat be like? And he's like, oh, that's the easy part, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I could never tell if that was just like, I don't have that figured out, or I really do already have that figured out. Um, but he's, I don't know, because, you know, when you talk to some other guys, um, they sort of feel like he's he's not, he's like shortchanging the difficulties um, of the plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, talk about what, um, what other things he's involved. You know, he's also involved with the electric cars and solar energy and stuff. Talk about sort of from a science fiction perspective, if Elon Musk, if everything goes according to plan, kind of how will he transform the world in the next decade or so? The last chapter of the book is kind of this unified field theory of Elon Musk. Um, and you can definitely see overlap between the companies today. Um, SpaceX does... They've done all kinds of interesting sort of work with material science and things like um, to get geeky, I guess, friction stir welding, which is this really interesting welding technique for um, creating stronger welds between large sheets of metal. And, and Tesla is going to start using that now. And then with Solar SolarCity, um, we're already seeing that they're taking their solar panels and, and putting that energy into um, these like Tesla storage packs that are going on houses and, and buildings now. And then um, some of the solar city panels go onto the Tesla recharging stations um, for the cars. And so all this stuff gets threaded together. I mean, I think from a science fiction perspective, I mean, it's pretty incredible that he would have, so, you know, he's not only building the electric cars, but he's building this, um, recharging network. So in my head, I always picture the U.S. And this is not coming from like an Elon fanboy part. I mean, I totally am into what he's doing. And but this is just kind of like if I play out the fantasy in my head, <laughs> is that you've got the U.S. with like this totally decaying infrastructure and uh, crappy highways, and and then I feel like it's a cool sort of thought that maybe we wake up in five or ten years and we have not just Teslas, but like lots of electric cars and there's a electric charging network that's been built and, and that 
it's not just Elon's companies, but that this one guy sort of like pushed all this stuff along is pretty incredible to me. And um, I don't know. I mean, the possibility that you could wake up in five or 10 years and have that be a reality is, I think, like amazing and, and sort of inspiring. Um, you know, and then, I mean, I don't know how much you want to get into it, but obviously he talks about things like the Hyperloop and then the other thing he really wants to get to is this um, electric sort of vertical liftoff plane. Have you heard him talk about that? I, I just, what you, just what I read in your book. The book, yeah, because so he's got this idea that instead of where we have airports today on the edges of cities because they're loud and they need the big runway, it'd be so much cooler if you wanted to go to New York just to fly right into Manhattan for your meetings and zip out. And so he wants to make kind of a quiet, uh, all-electric jet that can do vertical um, liftoff and landing. And it sounds like um, Larry Page and Sergey Brin at Google kind of want to help him out on that project. Right, and you, you you talk about how those guys will all hang out in an apartment in Palo Alto and talk about like a what was it like a commuter plane that never lands? It just flies around the world, and you kind of hop up to it and hop down. I was trying to understand exactly how that would work because <laughs> it was it was like a guy who had been in on one of these dinners. Um, but if I could sit in on anything, it would be one of these dinners. Apparently, the Google guys do. They have a secret apartment in Palo Alto that's been described to me as as kind of one of the taller buildings in Palo Alto and there's not that many tall buildings and and this is where they go to do their brainstorming and this guy I interviewed George Zachary he's a venture capitalist he got to sit in on his dinner between Elon and Larry and Sergey and the way they because the I interviewed Larry for the book too the way they explain it to me is that they just come up with thousands of ideas during these dinners and then pick like one or two to actually go build but yeah it seems like it, it's there's like a refueling station that's constantly orbiting the earth and and you like zip up to it and grab some fuel and then zip down to wherever you need to go um, i think i explained it better in the book but i have to confess i never fully got it <laughs> uh well and then another th another one of these like pie in the sky kind of things is the space internet could you talk about that that's probably closer to reality. I've covered that in sort of a bunch of different ways. Um, there's this guy, Greg Weiler, who has been after this for a while. Today, there's a company called O3B, which has, I think, 12 satellites up, and it's basically delivering the internet for what they call like the other 3 billion. That's why it stands for O3B. And um, it's for places where you can't get fiber. And so they've managed to put the satellites in a bit of a lower orbit and so you, you get decent latency and um, so you can still do all the kind of stuff that uh, we would like to do like cloud services and video games and, and everything in uh, remote islands like in the Pacific and, and whatnot but uh, I guess the plan now that Elon has and shared with Google and then this guy Greg Weiler has got a his own competing startup called Worldview I think um, or OneWeb OneWeb is to instead of putting up 12 satellites is to put up thousands of satellites in a much lower orbit and then basically blanket the uh the world with this this low latency internet delivered from space and uh you know i guess in Elon's vision of this i mean it would again serve this other 3 billion that can't get fast internet but then he also sees it as like a high-speed backhaul for everybody's internet traffic and i love the way he describes it which is that the speed of light goes faster in space um in the vacuum and so it makes sense to do sort of the large-scale backhaul shifting of internet traffic in space and then dump it back down to the earth right and it's even bigger than that right because this is but he just sees this as a test run for doing the same thing on mars and giving mars internet right right Right, yeah. Only Elon could describe it this way, right? <laughs> so when he first announced sort of the plans to make a... I mean, it's basically kind of like a backup internet in space, and that would seem to be sort of big enough for most people. But, um, well, he sees it in two ways. One is, so he wants to eventually charge money for this. I mean, SpaceX makes a ton of money sending up commercial satellites and everything but but to get to mars i mean he, he needs to raise a lot of money and so he's seeing this as like a giant isp for the world that he could charge for 
then raise money for SpaceX, and then being the first leg of a space internet. And yeah, I think in my story that I wrote, he said, well, we're going to need the internet on Mars, right? So (laughs) (laughs) might as well get started now. Right. And then also speaking of Mars, one of the other really cool things in the book was you talk about maybe Craig Venter is going to be working with Elon to do some sort of 3D printer that could print out um, biological stuff for Mars colonists. They've definitely talked about this already. I sat in Craig's office, and I'm pretty sure I've talked about this with Elon, too. But when I talked to Craig, he said, yeah, Elon and I have talked about this. They want to make um, sort of like your synthetic biology 3D printer and and put one of those on Mars. And then you'd be able to send it instructions to print out whatever you want and sort of make... um, make organisms there even if even if you didn't have that many people you could have these printers there doing work for you and before you got there and then i mean any of this uh terraforming kind of stuff seems like that would be the way you might do it is to send up tons of organisms to try and work on on heating mars up for you yeah, and so, so like, I should be clear, like, Elon, he has all these really ambitious ideas, but he's actually come through on a surprising number of them so far, as you said. And there was a line in the book that really struck me. You said, Surely Musk did not have the gall to try to revamp the very idea of the automobile and build an energy network at the same time, with a budget equivalent to what Ford and Exxon spend on their annual holiday parties. <laughs> it is true, though. He, he, he does, you know, I think... I don't know how many people that listen to the show, like how closely they follow Tesla, but when he first, it's sort of like he came out with the Model S and then he said, oh, we're going to build this network of charging stations. And then they announced like six in California and Arizona and Nevada. And then I sort of figured it would go really slowly (laughs) from there as far as building out that network goes, especially given that Tesla... um, like they make a lot of revenue on their cars, but they're not sort of printing money like a software company or anything like that. And so the thought that today, I mean, there's hundreds of these charging stations and they're on uh, at least three continents that I can think of is nuts. And you go to the Tesla headquarters and they have all these charts on like how much we've saved on gasoline from the network. And it's some pretty lofty figures now, but SpaceX is probably even more impressive. I mean, I think the first Dragon capsule would have cost on the order of a billion dollars, all told, and in space money, that's insane. I think, <laughs> like, at best, you could be thinking that somebody else would build that for $10 billion. Um so at least a tenth, and then some of my favorite stories in the book are these contractors that SpaceX goes to, and it's like they want like a turbo pump for the engine. And if Boeing was asking for that, it would be like a hundred million dollars on a five year project. And SpaceX would give them like $10 million in a year (laughs) to build it. And, and it's just sort of always that way with Elon. There's also some of my favorite stories are the, um, an engineer will come with like a budget for, for 50000 or $100,000 for an actuator, just some sort of device to make something kind of like a valve open and close. And Elon tells him, you know, that's no more complicated than a garage door opener. I want you to build it for $5,000. And uh, six months later, the guy does it. I mean, it's, it's kind of weird. You, I guess if you just set these like insane goals, sometimes people get at least like halfway there and <laughs> and, uh, and good things happen. Well, yeah, and it seems like Elon, he also benefits a lot from having this sense of mission, and that really inspires the people who work for him. Uh, the, another line that really struck me is uh, one of his, one of the people who works for him at, at SpaceX says to some new employees, I think, if you hate people and think human extinction is okay, then fuck it, don't go to space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that's how they see it, that the survival of humanity is what's at stake here when you go to work every morning. Right. I think that's Gwen Shotwell, right? Who's yeah, the yeah. president. Yeah, so she, you know, she's the president of SpaceX and she's this longtime aerospace industry veteran who basically quit her pretty cushy job to go work and like risk everything to go work at SpaceX because I mean, she joined I think in 2002 or 2003, so the first year and there was like no reason to believe that <laughs> SpaceX would ever accomplish what it actually set out to do. And um you, she's essentially she runs the day-to-day operations of SpaceX and is like dealing with Elon all the time, which is is like no easy feat at all. I mean, he can be hard on 
rank and file employees. And so you can imagine, you know, being the president of SpaceX, sort of the intensity of how much you're dealing with him and on the topics that you're dealing with him. And, you know, she sticks through it all because she believes this is like as big of a uh, dream and quest for her as it is for Elon. And um, that's how, you know, I think, yeah, I think that's how he gets so much out of the employees. I mean, the people at SpaceX are super bright, but they're also just incredibly driven by this mission in the same way Elon is. And it's like one of my favorite things about them. I mean, the amount of passion that you can just sort of feel going to these companies is very different than your average company. Right. And I mean, one thing, another thing that struck me is just that before I read this book is that I might have thought to myself, oh, if I had $200 million, I could do this. I could hire a bunch of smart people and give them an idea of something I think would be good for humanity and they would do it. And reading this book, I'm like, oh man, there's no way I could do what this guy has done. Uh, just the amount of, the amount of uh, risk, the amount of stress, the amount of just like being mean to people. I mean, you know, it's, it's a, yeah, it's crazy hard. I mean, you know, there's kind of a litany of rich guys who tried to do stuff in space and who failed for all kinds of reasons. I mean, the other thing I found was just, it's sort of obvious that the incumbents and the government are going to be kind of a pain in the ass to deal with. But like, um, to do that for 10 years and you're, you're like working so hard and you're kind of doing it on behalf of the country and just people generally and there's always these like assholes trying to get in your way <laughs> you know just just and, and to just be a pain i mean i feel like that would wear me down so quickly um but like all those things seem to turn elon onto like into angry elon <laughs> which is, is not the one you want to deal with at all and so um i mean i think that's kind of where i give him serious points is that like his resolve is is crazy and he's kind of, you know and he's fighting he's fighting like bureaucrats in space and then he's fighting dealerships and tesla and the energy companies and solar city it's like any one of those bags of people would be enough i think to drive anyone demented to do all three at the same time is is just ridiculous when it was crazy stuff too that competitors were doing like they, they were making up stories that he had a secret family back in south africa Right, and, yeah, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> and I don't, I don't remember who it was, but somebody said that she got sent fake anthrax because she tried to, she was trying to do private space stuff. I mean, it was just crazy, crazy things. It was Lori Garver. She used to be the number two at NASA, and I put that in a footnote, which I feel really bad about now. I'm impressed. You, you read the book, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the uh, um, and and uh, yeah, because it seemed. Like this huge revelation. I just, I sort of got it late in the reporting process and wasn't sure how to put it in. But yeah, I mean, she never named which competitor it is, but the list is like pretty small. But <laughs> <laughs> it could be. And um, they're telling her that Elon has a second family in South Africa and that he's got these like huge tax problems. And I mean, if that's happening, I'm, you know, I'm the worst reporter in the world. <laughs> never like even caught a whiff of that and elon i'm i'm like 99.9 percent .9 sure has like never been back to south africa since he left when he was 17 and um and then yeah she was talking about anthrax in the mail and obviously there was all this pressure back in the day not to like let any of these private companies um bid on the nasa contracts and and then since then even since i started reporting the book in 2012 you know, SpaceX was doing successful flights back then, but it was it was still sort of like a joke in the or it just wasn't taken. It was sort of like this is just not going to work over the long term, and they're going to have problems. And they've just gotten, especially this last year, so consistent at doing their launches. And then, you know, the guys who used to battle Elon in Congress have been fired from United Launch Alliance and replaced and. Everyone else has had to start like a reusable rocket research program of some sort, even though SpaceX now has like this enormous lead over them. And then guys like Lockheed have had to turn to Blue Origin and Jeff Bezos to get like American made engines. Um, so it's like Elon's unbelievably won on every front. <laughs> but I mean, you mentioned earlier that he's not the easiest person to work with all the time. And you do go to trouble in the book to talk to critics of him to get 
more of a balanced picture. Do you want to just talk about what are some of the, you think, the more telling criticisms that people um, had for him? Well, I mean, I guess it starts on a basic level. It's just, it's a different work environment than you would find at a normal company. I mean, six days a week is kind of the bare minimum at Tesla and SpaceX, and Elon's pretty unapologetic about that. Um, it's one of those things where you can be a hero and come up with like a really big idea that serves the company well, but that doesn't really buy you um, months or years of, of cover. I mean, it's kind of like, what have you done for me lately type culture, especially at SpaceX. I mean, the early employees, they worked hundred hour weeks for years and a lot of people get sort of burnt out by the demands and the pace. And then Elon, he's kind of got better about this over time but he's one of those guys at a meeting he's gonna call you out in front of your peers and sometimes with like really harsh language and um in the earlier days like zip2 and paypal i mean he would just straight up call someone like an idiot who was like twice his age and, and kind of embarrass him in front of everyone i think um now he's a little bitter about that although he will still go at you and sort of make you um defend your argument, which is fine. He just does it in a really heated fashion. And I, so I just think for some people, it's too much. And and for other people, they hang around and take it. Right. And and for this book, you also interviewed his first wife, Justine Musk. And right. two quotes of hers that struck me is uh, that Elon said to her is one is, I am the alpha in this relationship. And then also, if you were my employee, I would fire you. Everyone remembers that one. <laughs> <laughs> the... Uh, I mean, she wrote about her relationship with Elon on a blog. It was quite detailed. And then she's a writer by trade. She writes like young adult fiction and she's quite a good writer. And, well, and, and fantasy novels, I understand. Fantasy, yeah, like sort of vampire fantasy novels. And she'd written for Marie Claire and other magazines. I mean, she's like a beautiful writer. And then so, yeah, I mean, the stuff, she's got a real turn of phrase. And I think that what, that is sort of the thing. I think she felt like she had become an employee and that he was kind of talking to her like he might to um, some other people. And then I, you know, in, in the book, um, there's this woman named Mary Beth Brown, who was as far as like the whole Tony Stark, Iron Man thing goes. I mean, she was his pepper pot. She was like the most loyal assistant you could ever imagine. She, you know, Elon lives between Los Angeles and Silicon Valley and splits his time every week between the two cities so you're sort of like this vagabond kind of lifestyle and she did the same thing she had like as far as i could tell no real social life because she was working six or seven days a week and um and then she would do like elon's personal like assistant kind of stuff but also business things and media and and marketing and make she did everything she's kind of this incredible character and she was there for like 13 years and then and then one day to like the horror of everyone, like, you know, he basically, he didn't fire her in as many words, but he dismissed her and she chose from her job and she chose not to come back. And, um, you know, it was like the fact that he would do this to Mary Beth Brown was like this huge shock to everyone at all his companies. Right. Well, and you mentioned that he, the, the media sort of christened him the, the real life Iron Man. Uh, what do you make of that? I mean, it's kind of, well, this is caricature kind of thing, obviously, but um, I feel like he's kind of growing into it more and more <laughs> over time. We had this funny thing one time. We were outside. He had produced um, a documentary, and we were standing outside, and I'm like, yeah, this Iron Man thing is all just BS. I thought he was sort of like totally downplay it, but he didn't at all. He Because he, uh, I'm like, you're not... Uh, you know, like Tony Stark, you're not drinking scotch in the back of a Humvee in, in Afghanistan. You, like sort of this um, real like playboy kind of charismatic dude. And, and he's definitely not that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's like, well, I drank this drink called the zombie in Haiti once when I was canoeing through the jungle and everything. So he didn't sort of downplay it. And then, I mean, one thing I kind of like is that he's different than the other tech CEOs who are mostly Silicon Valley based and who are kind of stereotypically in nerdland and happy there, you know, which is like Elon likes Hollywood. I mean, he's different. He likes hanging out with movie stars and he's always at the Super Bowl or the Kentucky Derby or the Mayweather fight and kind of where the action is. And that's um, 
I think he likes being like the L.A. sort of physicist, Steve. I mean, he likes playing that role. So, you know, it's sort of a silly caricature and everything. But then there's also like a part in the book where, I mean, I interviewed Robert Downey Jr. And he actually went to the SpaceX factory and got a tour of it with Elon before the first Iron Man came out. And then he made sure that there was a Tesla Roadster, like right by Tony Stark's workbench. And and then Robert Downey Jr.'s mind, he, he felt like Elon and Tony Stark were friends. And so he did sort of like inject some of this into the character. And apparently they have a, a life-size Iron Man standing in somewhere in the... Uh... They they do. It's in the SpaceX building. It's not quite in the factory. It's sort of more in the... It's like it, the last, it sort of moves. The last time I saw it, it was like... It's kind of been put into this see-through part of an elevator, if I remember right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's like it's just this giant Iron Man, like, you know, in the suit and everything. And um, yeah, and it's it's sort of like... Um, which is like a big prop in the SpaceX building. Right. Well, and you quote Elon in the book. He says, maybe I read too many comics as a kid. In the comics, it always seems like they are trying to save the world. And it seems like he's trying to save the world. It's interesting. I mean, you also talk about how he open-sourced all these patents for Tesla, uh, even though it was presumably bad for business just because he thought it was good for humanity. I haven't made up my mind on that one yet. It's weird. I mean, I feel like it was part publicity stunt and part genuine. I th- <laughs> Obviously, he did open source the patents, and and yeah, I mean, you're totally right. I mean, it's sort of like we talked about a little bit before. I mean, I think he does. Um, I don't think he has like a god complex, but I think he's he definitely wants to save humanity and feels like he's one of the few people who's actually trying to do it. So I guess you have to have at least a healthy ego <laughs> to sort of wake up in the morning and do that. I mean, on the like the patent thing, I do. I think. He genuinely, you know, he wants like other people to make electric cars and, and he feels like their technology is sort of crappy or at least that he can give them like a head start. I think that is all sort of genuine. I also feel like he, he knows on some level, you know, it's this whole like not invented here syndrome combined with like, they're just not going to take Tesla's IP. So maybe it's their fault, but I feel like he he knows it's it's not like an empty gesture, but that they're not actually probably going to do it. Uh-huh. Well, it, it's interesting because I mean, you, in this book, you have the epilogue where you sort of give your your kind of like your your understanding of Musk's character. Um, I guess how long did it take you to form that idea, and do you feel like you got to the core of who he is? I feel like I did. I mean, even before the epilogue in the last chapter, there's this. So, I mean, I want to do this delicately because I, I mean, I think about it seriously and I, I'm not trying to be flip or anything, but you know, a lot of his employees think that he's like somewhere on the spectrum. And I heard that a lot over and over and over again, but I don't think to me, I don't, I don't know enough about it, but I don't think that's the case. And I did go to like lots of psychologists and, and experts in this field and had really detailed, long conversations with them about Elon. And I sort of feel like he, there's a clinical term for um, a group of kids who they're called profoundly gifted. And this isn't just like some random label. I mean, it is a clinical term and it's for kids who have extraordinarily high IQs, but they also have sort of a different um, perspective on life. They, from a very early age, sort of have an empathy for humanity. They see like flaws in the way people do things and from a very early age have like identified the one or two flaws that they kind of want to fix. And, and, um, and it's like hard for them to let go of that. And, you know, to me, that is, this is Elon. I think he's, he's a, he's like forever been consumed by this idea that, um, he can fix like some of the mistakes that people have made and that he feels kind of like a deep empathy for humanity. He doesn't really feel like, or he doesn't let himself feel this interpersonal empathy that the rest of us do about like, how was your day or your family or anything like that? It's more about our prospects as a species. And and the reason I sort of feel this way is that, you know, he would, he, he does feel emotions. I mean, he would tear up. He would be like crying about things we would talk about, whether it was his childhood or, um, you know, things like the survival of man and things like that. And then at the same time, in all the interviews we did, he like never asked once about 
do I even have kids? What's my, he never asked me a question about myself, like ever, I don't think. Um, and so, you know, he's just wired a little differently. <laughs> so, uh, what sort of response have you gotten on the book and have you heard from Elon about it? Well, I mean, the, like, I mean, things like the book reviews and all that stuff have generally been really, really strong. Um, it just reached number two on the New York Times bestseller list. So that was good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and like people on Amazon and Audible seem to like it. So, um, it's been really nice. I mean, I spent like a, I put in a ton of work. And so I wanted it to read more than just like some, uh, well, I definitely didn't want it to read like a dull biography, but I wanted it to read like a story, like a narrative about this guy's life. And so it feels like people are, some people see it that way. Um, and then Elon, well, I let him see the book when it was finished before it came out. Just so he didn't have to like buy it on Amazon. He'd read it and like be hit over the head. And um, he kind of freaked out for a couple of days and then, a day passed and then he came back and he said, you know, on the whole it's well done and it's accurate. And so, um, I mean, on something like as tricky as this, I felt like that was like a pretty good spot to end on. <laughs> um, and you know, we were never, we were never like friends or had any kind of, um, like intimations that we were, I mean, it was like sort of like a business relationship, I guess on some level, but, um, and so I didn't like, I wanted to be objective and to tell the truth, but I, you know, I certainly didn't want to like demoralize the guy or anything like that on the, at the end. Right. Well, I, I agree with you about it being an exciting book. I mean, I definitely found it thrilling to read and it made me, you know, it made me wish I were younger. I was like, Oh, maybe I could, you know, <laughs> do, do more than, do more than podcasting. If I, you know, if I, if I, had this. I hear there's like over and over again, everyone's like, Oh, it made me feel like I hadn't done anything with my life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, I guess you could sort of, I could definitely see where that comes from. On the other hand, you know, kind of while I was writing it and then, and then I was kind of hoping on the other side, people would be like, well, you know, maybe now I'm going to like push myself, you know, it, from, from where I'm going. And, uh, what, cause like while I was writing it and Elon would give me a tough time sometimes, I just be like, what would Elon do? You know, he would like just not back down and he would not give up. And, and, um, I feel like once you hear some of the stories about what he did, you can like apply a little bit of, I don't think anyone can like be like Elon totally, but you can apply some of it in your life. Right. Well, I think this is sort of the dream for science fiction writers. At least one of them is that some kid might read your book or listen to your podcast and grow up to be Elon Musk and transform the world. So I don't know if there are any kids out there listening to this. Do you have any advice for how they could become the next Elon Musk? Well, I mean, I think his life sort of proves that it's possible because he probably, they didn't have a podcast, but I mean, essentially did the same thing. You know, I think it was getting the right message at the right time for sure. I think people ask me, like, can you be like Elon? I mean, because of the reasons I talked about with the profoundly gifted thing and 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 then there's some parts you would never want. Like he had a horrendous childhood, both from like his family and, and other kids at school and things like that. It's kind of like, well, you know, do you want to be tortured <laughs> as kind of a recipe for success? I mean, I guess you have to ask yourself that question. But I think the thing that I take away is that pretty much sort of where we started with the Hitchhiker's Guide is like, find what really matters to you. And when you do, don't half-ass it. <laughs> All right, then one last thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, right at the beginning of the book, there's this line about Elon, what, what Elon worries about. And you say, uh, he opened up about the major fear keeping him up at night, namely that Google's co-founder and CEO, Larry Page, might well have been building a fleet of artificial intelligence-enhanced robots capable of destroying mankind. Which is totally what happened. We sort of sat down where you would be like, hey, how's it going? Well, that's what I said. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> he, said, he said, I'm afraid that Larry Page is going to kill us all. So, like, not, not in, like, a funny way, in a really sort of depressed way. Uh, I mean, they have the craziest relationship of, like, anyone in Silicon Valley, I think, because they're friends, and Elon stays at Larry's house when he's in Silicon Valley. Then he obviously thinks Larry's, like, a well-meaning, good person, but he, he totally also thinks he's, like, possibly building the end of mankind. And Elon... You know, he invests in all these artificial intelligence companies. He says to, like, keep an eye on how they're going. And, like, one that he was invested in was DeepMind, which has some very powerful AI that Google acquired. And so I think it's just starting to, like, freak Elon out. I mean, he would come back. It sort of, like, worsened. Um, 
that was essentially like one of our first interviews. And then over the course of time, it just got worse and worse and worse. And Tallulah Riley, his uh, most recent wife, would tell me that she and Elon talk about this like late into the night and freak out about it together. And so um, this was like his very real fear. Wow. All right. So unfortunately, Ashley, we're pretty much out of time. Do you just have anything else you want to mention in terms of uh, other projects you're working on or other books or anything like that? That's sort of the big thing. I'm kind of trying to regroup myself a little bit after doing this. And um, I was kind of, I'm like sort of thinking maybe of doing like a young adult version of this with like full of really cool science fiction um, illustrations and everything. I think just because there was so much interest from like young people while I was writing. Um, But that's it for right now. Well, that sounds great. No, I hope you're able to do that. And so, uh, yeah, we're going to have to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Ashley Vance and this new book. It's called Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future. So, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Ashley Vance for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Massively Max, who writes, I have a job that lets me listen to podcasts all day on headphones, and I just finished mainlining the entirety of Geek's Guide. I'll add my voice to the chorus that rightfully says this is one of the best nerd topic podcasts running. I was looking for interviews with writers, and David and John do an excellent job of interviewing. The panels are great as well. It has made me interested in doing some writing of my own. Here's to many more episodes from these highly intelligent, well-read guys. So big thanks again to Massively Max for that great review. And, of course, a special thank you to Greg Harris and Benjamin Keel, who both signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So, if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. Alright, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it... Tell no one. Thank you for listening.